And, and um, let, me, let me say just a couple other sort of um, preparatory remarks, and then I, I really want to try to give you a sense of how it is we got the book that we're going to be studying, because honestly, the book itself doesn't tell you that story. Does that sort of make sense? And, and it's a pretty interesting one. Um, before that, though, you know, when our kids were, were small, and I still have one of those, um, if they want to go on a field trip, they have to have a permission slip. Right, and it has to be signed. And and, and there's a uh, she's become very popular lately. Brene Brown is a is a sort of a, a shame um, a shame and and fear and forgiveness researcher. And and she has this exercise where she encourages people to write permission slips for themselves. And and this has been really helpful for me, even on a sticky note. Um, and I want to hold it up to you. It may be helpful before coming or, um, or, or even before the whole time we spend together to write yourself some permission slips, like permission to ask a question even if I'm not sure it's a good one. Um, permission, permission to come and listen to other people even if I don't think I'll learn something, right? Um, permission to ask really hard questions and not leave with answers. Whatever permission you need, I'd encourage you to write yourself that slip. And I want you to hear from me. You have, not that you need it, but you have my permission, because this is your time and we're grown-ups here, at any point to say, Mike, I don't care about what you're talking about. Let's talk about this other thing. <laughs> you could be more gentle than that, but, but you don't have to be, because I gave you permission not to. Uh, really, this time is meant to serve to serve you, and sometimes I chase rabbits that you don't want to follow, and you can just say, let that one go, and let's come back, okay? Please, please do that. Um, permission to interrupt any time with a question. Um, per permission, um, really, to open your heart to one another. Um, I, I, I'm giving you that. You may choose to give it to yourself or not, but, but what I find interesting about the Bible, if we, we listen more, more often than not, um, the Bible reads us more than we read it. Um, the way we interact with it often has a lot to do with us instead of the way it actually reads. I don't know if that makes sense. We'll see if that proves true for you over the time. Um, so just as a way of, of, of initial um, talking, I, it occurred to me, we, we have a little chapel uh, here every day for our day school kids, and um, you know, we call it the Holy Bible, but for them and for us, sometimes we, we don't actually pause on those words. You know, it's helpful to know that um, the word holy, when the Bible uses it, it doesn't necessarily mean um, something that's sacrosanct and pure. It means something that's extraordinary. It means something that's set apart. So, so I want you to think about, you already have holy things in your house according to the Bible, and holy rhythms in your life. Um, the way I grew up, my mom had holy dishes. They were called china, and we used them twice a year. Um, they lived in the hutch, and we didn't put them in the dishwasher, and we didn't eat off them unless it was Thanksgiving or Christmas. Those were holy dishes because they were set apart, and we knew those meals were special because we ate on the special dishes. That, that sense of special is really what the Bible is trying to get at when it uses the word holy. And so one of the things we'll talk about is, is how the Bible is set apart, or isn't for you, honestly. And then the word Bible itself is a little tricky because the word Bible is actually just a, translate, a transliteration that means 
not a translation. That means they, transliteration means they took a Greek letter and converted it to an English letter. And the Greek word is biblion, and we've written that now as Bible in English. Um, the word biblios means book, but this is not called the book, it's called the books. So these are the books that are set apart. And it's really helpful to start out up front because there's a very big difference between books and book. Um, a book implies some monolithic unilateral voice. What you're going to find, honestly, are lots of different voices, not just different genres. Again, we're skipping the first lesson, so it's okay for me to tell you there's poetry and there's prose and there's sardonism and there's profanity and there's earthy, gritty material in here, depending on the book within the books. Lots of different things. Of course, we all know that if you're looking at a political cartoon, that's really different from looking at a photograph. We know that because we're adults. If you ask a small child, did you just watch a cartoon, an animated feature, or, or a real life thing, they don't know the difference. <laughs> I know that sounds astounding, um, but that's a difficult question for them because they haven't, their brain hasn't developed to look at different genres, right? What's interesting is there are parts of the Bible that are the parlance of political cartoons. If I drew for you a donkey and it had on a, a, a red, white, and blue badge, you would probably think that's the Democratic Party. That'd be pretty clear to you, especially if there was a big elephant next to it doing something else, right? If you don't know that, then you'll just think it's a strange picture, right? Um, it's interesting to find out when we get to, to books that usually make people really uncomfortable, like, oh, the book of Revelation, when it talks about beasts and horns, those are political cartoons. <laughs> and they did for the people then what the donkey and the elephant do for us right now. So, so it's helpful to demystify some of that and say, uh, really, what did it mean to the people who received it? Because ultimately, if it didn't mean anything to them then, they wouldn't have kept it. <laughs> and they wouldn't have said it's to be set apart in a worship setting if we don't understand it. Um, so, so coming back to books is really important, books instead of one book. You, you'll often find, I think, that as we read through this, um, and I want to phrase this really carefully, I don't want to talk about contradictions in the Bible because that puts people a little bit on edge depending on how they, they, they grew up. I, I was raised the Bible never contradicts itself. Um, I don't think that's right, but, but, I, but I do want to say that I don't think is the issue. I think when you have, instead of one book, you have books, you have different voices, and, and I've learned this as an adult, um, there's a lot more to conversation than there is to monolith. And um, George H.W. Bush has this quote that describes me very well, and, and I think this is good about the Bible often. As, often. Um, he said, I have many opinions. Some of them are very strong. I often disagree with myself. Uh, and, and I want you to know, as we read through, the books sometimes have strong opinions and often disagree with themselves. Uh, just to give you an example, there's a, a book called Ezra that says non-Jewish women are bad and you should throw them out of town. And if you've had kids with them, you should throw them out of town too. 
Uh, they'll probably die if you do that. And then there's other books in which those foreign women and their kids end up being more faithful and just and good people than the Jewish people. And which is it? And, and in different times in life, those both seem like really strong ideas to us. Does that, does that make sense? Um, I don't know that the Bible always solves our questions, but it sure does ask them. It sure does ask them. And, and I think it asks us to keep asking them in conversation with these books and with God. And I think that's why the book is set apart. If I asked you what books are most inspirational in your life, some of you might say the Bible. Others of you might say books like To Kill a Mockingbird or um, um, a, a book of, of um, Robert Frost poems or, or Mary Oliver. We'd all have different things. All right? and, the, and, and the truth is that that's just part of life. Part of who we are is that different books will speak to us differently. The reason I think we hold on to these books alone in the church is not because they're the only authority, but because we've said these have been beneficial to people for hundreds of years. And while they don't have everything for everybody, they have enough for everybody. Does that sort of make sense? There's things in here I don't like and Thomas Jefferson didn't like either. And that's exactly why they belong here. Because if we only had a book we liked, we'd be worshiping ourselves. And, and, and this is really, I think, part of the holiness is we can have a conversation with ancient books and opinions that we're having conversations and inspirations with God that are totally different with things we're comfortable with. And that's, that's just all right. In fact, that's mature <laughs> to entertain a different idea without having to convert to it. That's Aristotle's definition of maturity, by the way. Um, so, so there's some just notes about Holy Bible, and, and let's see how the holiness plays out, again, for, for, for you. Um, I'd like to tell you now how we got it. And again, feel free to interrupt me. The story uh, could be really, really long. I'm just going to condense it, and I'll tell you about King James while we do it. <laughs> um, Almost every biblical scholar, and I'm talking about somebody with a PhD, and, and just to be clear how that's different from a master's degree, you know, you can get a, earn a Master of Arts in one year, you can earn a Master of Arts in two years, you can earn what I have, a Master of Divinity degree in three years. It's a professional degree that requires us to do something like hospital chaplaincy or supervised ministry, and, and, and so it's like an 80-hour master's degree, and it takes three years. And, and, and most... Most clergy have that, whether they're Episcopal or Methodist or Presbyterian. Depends what kind of Baptist you are. Um, sometimes it's not preferred, uh, just honestly. Um, a PhD degree requires you to have one of those different master's degrees and usually takes five years, two, two years of classes, a year of comprehensive ex exams, and then you have to write an original book, right? And you have to have knowledge of four languages other than your native. And typically, that'd be Greek and Hebrew if you're a biblical person, but then you would need to know most likely either Latin or German or French because a lot of the archaeology is written in French and a lot of the biblical theology is written in German. So just to give you an idea, when someone has a PhD, that, that, that really was a marathon that they ran in the academy. Um, when somebody has a master's degree, 
Well, I got one of those. Doesn't mean that much, you know. Uh, when somebody has a doctorate of ministry, it means they did a project and it didn't have to be original. It, it could have been helpful for them, but it's just good to parse this out, right? Um, that, that this is what people bring here. And, and honestly, most people who have PhDs and are investigated, in, invested in the research process don't work in parishes because they've spent their whole time investing themselves in the academy and in research. They work in seminaries. And sometimes what they do doesn't trickle down because the people who went to get their master's degree already knew what the Bible said. They just wanted their preaching certificate. That's what we called it, our preaching certificate. I got it. Got my, my preaching certificate. So, so, it, so, so that's just sort of the broad brush. But I want to tell you this, PhD people are, are pretty much in agreement with, with what I'm getting ready to tell you, which is, and it makes sense, um, uh, for, for the history of the world, most people have been illiterate. Uh, you know, that's, that, that's not even that new. I mean, 150 years ago, we're talking about a big, big bump in literacy where 5% of the population were literate. But we're thinking way older than that, where way less than 1% could read or write. And, and that means that the stories in here, in general, were not passed down through reading and writing. They were passed down orally, right? And... And the way to think about that is not that they went to school. School is a luxury and it's a modern invention by and large. Stories were told while people were doing things like weaving and, and, and spending seven hours a day making bread because that's how long it took. Stories were told around campfires. And we call this part, these are the earliest stories in the Bible, we call it oral tradition. To give you a good idea, Jesus, we know, lived and, and we think died around... 30 of the common era or AD. The, the earliest gospel is Mark. Pretty much everyone's clear on that one. And um, probably wasn't written till oh, between 50 and 70. So that's a 30 or 40 year gap. That means none of the people who saw Jesus probably wrote the stories themselves. Does that make sense? That means the stories were passed down orally before they were written down. Now, some people will tell you Oh, well, all that stuff's unreliable because, you know, the game Telephone, where if I told uh, Rainy a phrase like great big gobs of creamy, grimy gopher guts, and she whispered it all the way around the room, by the time it got back to Paul, he'd probably say, I like beans. And, and who changed it? We don't know. Uh, but, but we did that in elementary school to show how unreliable things are. I mean, I mean, the truth is when a story's good, the kernel tends to get passed on pretty well, Right. Of course, we also know that any good narrator or storyteller adapts a story to the audience. Any good teacher does that, right? If, if, if you're an excellent teacher, you won't treat three-year-olds the way you treat 18-year-olds. They have different vocabulary. They're at a different stage of cognitive neurodevelopment, right? So you have to tailor the story. And this is what happened with the Bible, scholars think, is that the kernel was... was was presented in an oral in a society that valued oral tradition according to the age group etc and that the stories that crystallized were the ones that really held the community's imagination the ones that said where the community said this is what really life is about and this story continues to mean something to my grandchildren and it meant a lot to my grandmother the stories that didn't get passed down were the ones that stopped making a difference does that sort of make sense uh, um, this tells you why when we start reading next week in Genesis, 
uh, chapter one, God makes the world in six days and makes human beings on the sixth day and rest on the seventh. All that's done. And then in chapter two, God makes the human being first and the animals later. And, uh, and, and where the sun and the moon came from, we don't know because they're different stories. And, and, and what the people decided is that even though those stories had different details, it wasn't about the historical value or the fact sequence. It's what the stories were telling them about the purpose of living that mattered. And both stories had really great things to say about why we're here and who God is and how we were made. Equally valuable stories. I may have already killed you with saying that, but when we read it next week, you're going to find two different stories. Uh, the creation cycle starts over again in Genesis chapter 2. When I heard this in college at the age of 18, it was the very first time I'd heard it. <laughs> and I was reeling for a long time. But, you know, if you follow a little bit with me, this actually isn't threatening to God. It's telling us that the value of the Bible is that it draws us into a deeper relation and conversation about who we are in God's eyes and one another's eyes and how we can better live as God intends. And that's the value of these stories. Not did they happen as described, but what do they mean? What do they mean for living? I hope that's, I hope that's sort of okay. So, so that's how, how, how uh, initially things happened is, is things were, were, were passed down. And then we think that the first time people started to really collect them in writing happened around the time that there was a king in Israel. And the first king we know of was a guy named Saul. And then the, the, the monarchy sort of grew into a big bureaucracy under David and even bigger under Solomon. So, so people think that the oldest written stories in the Bible were written around 1000 BCE. Can you think about that? Um, um, the Exodus happened a lot earlier than that. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that's earlier than that. That's been passed down for hundreds of years before being written down, you know, as presented historically. Um, we have some of those stories, and, and what's really interesting, the, the, the reason scholars are coming up with this is not just that it makes sense when you've got two different chapters, but, but actually chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Genesis have not only different um, sequences of events, they have completely different diction and syntax and, uh, and style. Either the person who, who wrote them was able to almost schizophrenically write two totally different documents and styles, or they say, look, these are two different traditions that have been in place and were recorded. Just for example, they use different names for God. And, and, and Genesis 1 never uses the name for God. Genesis 2 does, and vice versa. And, 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 and if you were to read in English these kinds of, well, you get to read them in English this week, see what you think. Um, but, but it explains, explains a good bit. And so um, what, what, what scholars have said is not only were these things orally uh, passed down before they were written, but even in, in the writing, a book like Genesis, which is a pretty big book, isn't a monolith itself. It represents a lot of different stories that have been combined into a document. Does that make sense? There's people, just to let you know, this is part of why I quit um, pursuing a PhD. I had one of these guys, I did this for six months, who will take a story and cut it into all the different sources it came from. 
and at the end say, yay. <laughs> it didn't really add any value to the text for me, so I just couldn't do that anymore. Um, and that was going to be my PhD advisor, so we were done. But, um, but there are people who, who will just chop it up. They're called source critics. And what they do is they say, ah, the source of Genesis 1 is this author, and the source of Genesis 2 is this other one. And Genesis 3, verses 1, 3, and 17 came from this other one. But in verse 1, part B, that's this other guy, except for that word, that's, that's the first source. And so there are people who do that with their whole, whole professional life, right, just to give you an idea. And, and it's not bad. In some ways, that's really interesting that they paid careful enough attention to diction and syntax and tone that they, that they can, can do that. Um, and, and so really, if I'm, I sound like I'm, I'm afraid I'm chasing a rabbit, um, but, but I mean to, a book like Genesis has got several different stories from several different time periods woven together. And... Uh, now that I've told you that idea, if you didn't know it, you have permission to see it or not. But if you didn't have that idea in your head and you just sort of read it like I did as a young boy, I, I thought, um, well, I thought Moses wrote the whole thing himself. And, and, and Moses might have written it all down at one time, but he sure didn't make it all up himself. Does that, does that make sense? He, he could have been the recorder. But he talks about his own death. That seems difficult to do. And, and he tells two stories about creation. And, and I don't know. I mean, I think he would just pick one of them, right? Unless they had a value that they're trying to transmit to us. Again, not about how God did it, but what it means. Does that, does that make a little sense? Uh, I don't want to threaten what the book's doing. I actually think it elevates it. Because um, the, way, the way I grew up was that if the Bible had one factual error, the whole book was useless. It was black and white thinking, and, and that's, that's what I was given. Uh, but I can tell you the Bible has a number of factual errors in it. Uh, and, and I'll point some of them out to you along the way. And, and you'll say, Mike, that's silly. Why are you making a big deal of it? And the reason I make a big deal of it is because I, I don't think the Bible is, is, I don't think that's the use of the Bible. I think the use of the Bible is to guide us into a conversation into God's presence, not to know everything about everything. Uh, you're welcome to disagree with me always, 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 always. Um, but but that's, sort of, that's sort of the idea here. So, so we've got lots of different sources. Some of them come from Solomon. Some of them come, um, scholars tell you, from the a exile. There was a time in which um, 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them were completely destroyed. We have some writings. They have a very different tone, like I'm really scared right now. Um, the other two got invaded and people got... Um, quarantined and exiled to Babylon. Different tone, different words from God used there. We have a time when they came back. We have writings from then. So, so the writings, the syntax, the theology even changes according to the circumstances of the writer. That's, that's what most scholars will, will tell you is going on. Then something really amazing happens. The Bible is all written in, in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew originally. Uh, which I think I told you is 10,000 words. That's very, very word poor. Um, around about 700 BCE, uh, the only people that could read Hebrew were, were priests and academics. And there weren't very many because there weren't universities. Just, just think, through, think through this. The number one types of writings we find aren't, aren't narratives. They're bills of sale. 
or how much you owe the king, right? I mean, that's pretty much what you did as a scribe is you wrote receipts and documents um, about property. Um, so, so there's these priests that end up knowing Hebrew. Everybody else speaks Aramaic, which is a derivative of Hebrew. It's in the Semitic language family, but that's what you speak. Hebrew is what you would do religiously. We saw that own phenomenon before Vatican II here in the Roman Catholic Church is you'd have the whole mass in Latin and no one knew what it meant. Well, that's part of why we had the Reformation, and the priests didn't even know what it meant. <laughs> that, that was a major, major problem, right? And, and um, so that's one of the things that happens is, is, is that it goes from Hebrew to Aramaic, and then there's another big thing that happens, which is Alexander the Great comes throughout and conquers really the known world and says everybody's gone talking Greek now. <laughs> and all of a sudden Aramaic starts to dry up, in the Bible, what do you know, has to be translated, if anybody's going to read it, into Greek. And, and, and they do this interesting thing. You know, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't quote the Hebrew one because none of the people who wrote it knew Hebrew. <laughs> it quotes the Greek one, which is often different <laughs> from the Hebrew one. Because anytime you translate, you interpret. For what it's worth, the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint or the LXX. There's this great story because normally, um, well, wait, let me save the punchline. Supposedly, uh, Alexandria came up with this project. This was like the Harvard of the ancient world. Alexandria had the, the library, right? And they brought 70 rabbis from all over the dispersed world to independently translate the Bible from Hebrew to Greek, 70. And the miracle, according to the story, is that every rabbi independently came up with exactly the same translation. Now, that number 70 is important because that translation is called the Septuagint, which means 70, or it's written the LXX in Roman numerals, 70. And the reason that would be especially miraculous is because two rabbis can't ever agree about anything. So, so to have 70 agree about everything would really be a gift of God. In fact, the tradition said that the Septuagint was better than the Hebrew. And that became then the document that people would have used, uh, our New Testament writers included. Well, well, you know your history. Greek didn't last forever. The Romans invaded and they used Greek for a long enough time, but then Latin became the parlance. So the scripture had to be interpreted again in order for the empire to really kind of hold on to it academically, and that version was called the Vulgate. And, and this was actually a really fantastic enterprise that happened. It was done by Saint Jerome, if you were in Israel, we visited where he did this. Um, Jerome was a really interesting guy because he didn't just use the Septuagint. Jerome brought in rabbis, which was not heard of that, that a Christian person in the late 300s would consult with Jewish people. And he did. He, so he, Jerome made the Vulgate using the best sources he could from Greek and Hebrew. And the Vulgate if you're Roman Catholic, is still what's behind, um, what, what's the translation, the Catholic Bible a translation. There's one Catholic Bible. Is it called the Jerome Bible? Anyway, th that still informs uh, the, the, the Catholic Bible to the preferred translation today. And Jerome's version was the authoritative translation for 
uh, until Martin Luther, just to give you an idea. And to tell you um, what's at stake when people do this, there's a passage in um, the book of, of Exodus where Moses gets up on the mountain and he talks with God face to face. And after doing that for so long, Moses' visage changes. And the way it reads right now, um, because, because we figured this out, is his face glows. And he has to put a veil over it because people are afraid of him. He's, he's sort of like a nightlight walking around. So he puts on a veil and people are no longer afraid of the glowing face. Well, Jerome got to that word and he mistranslated it. Instead of his face shining light, Jerome in the Vulgate wrote, he grew horns. If you've ever seen Michelangelo's sculpture of Moses that's sitting in Rome, he's got two horns like Pan does, uh, like a satyr would. Um, it's likely Michelangelo was making fun of the Vulgate uh, when he did this. Uh, honestly, Michelangelo did some really interesting critical art. <laughs> um, but, but that's the difference between shining and horns. Now, now, I guess they're equally miraculous and equally scary, honestly. So, so putting a veil over the horns is a great idea. Putting a veil over the lights would uh, that may be less scary. Um, this is kind of what's at stake with, 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 with translation, though. And, uh, and again, when... Uh, a language only has 10,000 words, and one of those words is used only one time in the Hebrew Bible, you don't have a lot of contextual analysis to figure out what it means. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, so so, so that's, that's part of, part of the issue. Um, now, you know, uh, I already mentioned this, one of the problems with the Reformation is nobody could read the Bible, not even the priests. The, 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 the priests were, were a sadly uneducated lot during the, the late Middle Ages to the point that instead of saying hocus, hocus um, corpus meum, this is the body of Christ, they would say hocus pocus. And, and that's where the phrase comes from, is, is uneducated priests saying the wrong words at the Mass. And, and children knew that's when bread becomes flesh, that's magic. So they'd go around and say hocus pocus like they learned from their priest. Um, priests couldn't read the Bible either. They didn't know what it said. You've heard this stuff like, oh, that's why stained glass windows were there, because people could hear the stories of the Bible that way. If you don't know the story of the Bible, that window makes no sense to you. It's a picture of really scary or sad people, and, and nobody really knows why they're sad. I just, this is important to know. Biblical illiteracy has been the lot of the church for a long, long, long time, until the Reformation, right? Until Martin Luther was ultimately pushed into a position he didn't want to adopt by the Pope. Martin Luther wanted to reform the church, not separate, and, and, and he got pushed, so, so, so Luther did the first thing in 1,200 years that, that lasted. He, he translated the Bible from the Vulgate into German. And he also did the Erasmian thing and used the, the, the cutting-edge Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that were about 20 years old. You've heard of Erasmus in high school. He was the prince of the Renaissance, you know, and he was the one who said, we need to go back to Greek and Hebrew with the Bible. The, the thing that not everybody knows is that Erasmus translated the Vulgate into Greek and used that version. He, he didn't go back to older manuscripts because they didn't have them. They'd all disappeared and they were only forthcoming in later years. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Talk about going backward to go forward. That's sort of what happened. Um, so so um, 
you got the German one that happened with Luther. All of you probably know um, uh, that there were some English and some other versions that ultimately got translated and distributed, and the people who wrote them got killed because that was seen as usurping the church's authority until, um, until King James in 1611 came up with a really fine, really fine translation. King James did what Jerome did. He consulted with Hebrew and Greek texts. He consulted people from the continent and from Spain and the Jewish diaspora. He brought all the known sources together to make the King James Bible, and it really was a fine translation at the time. The oldest text he had in 1611 was from the 1450s. And again, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have texts that are 2,000 years older than that. Why does the age of a manuscript matter? It, it, it matters uh, for a couple reasons that, that are pretty intuitive. If you have one person who's literate who's copying a manuscript into a copy, and, and they're doing this in general on a veal skin, that's, that's you know, a baby cow, enormously expensive, that, that hide, because cows eat a tremendous amount of grain and produce very little energy in return. You know, in a, in, a, in a poor agricultural climate, cows are a rich investment. And then to eat the veal, uh, whew, huge forfeit of calories and milk, etc. right? So the veal skin, though, is pliable, and it does a lot better than a, than a hide. Actually, the good thing about the veal skins they use is that we still have them. If they used paper, we wouldn't have that. Does it make, make a little sense? So imagine copying, because there's not very many people can read or write. And you do this for eight hours a day. You look at a text that's written in 12-point font with no spaces because the original or the oldest manuscripts we have in Hebrew and Greek don't have spaces. The skin was too precious to waste on spaces. And there's no 18-point font. The skin was too precious to, wait, to waste on that, right? So you look at a bunch of words all jammed together for eight hours a day, and you dip your quill in an inkwell every time you want to write a letter. How accurate do you suppose your copying is going to be? They developed ways to help them. They numbered the lines, right? They counted the number of words on the line and wrote that at the end. They counted the number of letters at the line and wrote that at the end. That's all really helpful stuff, right? So, so and these are people professionally getting paid. They, 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 they do good work. But over time, little variants start to emerge in these manuscripts. Um, Later, you, you, you know this, um, that, that in the Middle Ages, the way they figured out to do this faster was to have one person read to a whole room of scribes, and that way you could get, well, 20 copies at a time. Um, of course, you know there's things like homophones, and, and those start to emerge in manuscript copies. And there's another interesting thing that happens, whether in the room or the single person. Sometimes people would be copying, and in the margin, they would write a note. Like, that's weird. And then later, that marginal note would make its way into the text <laughs> that was copied in perpetuity. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, it doesn't mean that older is always better. However, um, sometimes the variants are significantly different in Dead Sea Scrolls and King James Version of the Bible. 
I don't mean that God is portrayed in a completely different way. I just mean from a textual perspective, um, we've got 2,000 more worth of research against the King James Version. It was fine for its time, but we're way past that, right? So, so now there's a version called the New King James Version, uses the same cadence and language, but the Dead Sea Scrolls have updated it. Does that sort of make sense? Um, will it make a huge difference? I don't know, but, but it's one of those people getting ready for that job in the academy. I guess it still matters to me, so I don't, I don't use that one. Um, you might be surprised to know that um, it's not always the easiest reading that scholars prefer. Scholars usually think when there are variant readings that the more difficult one is to be preferred because our tendency is to smooth things out, not make them more complicated in religious settings. That's, that's the idea. Um, often the shorter one is to be preferred to the longer one, right? Uh, for the same reason, people seem to embellish things that they're uncomfortable with. Um, those are things that, 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 that scholars decide on. Now, how did we end up with so many different translations like the New Revised Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, and, and the NIV, and the K, the da-da-da-da-da. The, the reason really is because our tradition as Christians has been to build very elaborate theologies on single words. So every word matters to us, and that's why people have invested so much in so many different translations. Uh, again, Anyone you read is going to know a lot more than I know, but that's sort of how the, the waters have fled. You know, what's been really interesting about all, all this business is that there are societies out there called like the Wycliffe Bible Translators who have translated the Bible into almost every language in the world. I mean, really, almost every language. Even if a people group only is comprised of, say, 300 people and they have their own unique dialect, the Wycliffe people will try to get it into their language, and often the missionaries are the first person to commit that language to writing and thereby they preserve the language. I mean, this is sort of a neat, a, 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 a neat consequence of missionary activity uh, is, to, is to make this accessible to everybody in, in their own native indigenous idiomatic language. And that's part of why we have so many different translations in English is people struggle with the idioms. Uh, and do we give them to you woodenly or, 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 or do we try to put them, put a Hebrew one and give it to you in English, or I hope you, hope, hope you catch my drift. Um, I probably missed the most exciting thing for you, which is who picked what went in here. <laughs> and um, it wasn't God, I, I want you to know, or at least it wasn't directly God. And the other thing that's important to know is that the Bible is very clear, at least in, in the books of Exodus and the book of Daniel, that God is literate, God is capable of writing, but that God has only written two things, <laughs> and they're short phrases. So, so human people did write these books. God probably, we say inspired, that means different things to different people, right? But, but this isn't in God's handwriting, and, and, and God didn't make one scroll. Actually, what made it in and what made it out was extremely controversial, resulted in fisticuffs. Um, the stories are, are, are pretty, pretty interesting. Um, the, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, didn't really get firmly decided upon until about 80 A.D. or C.E. Now, now the, old, the, the newest book in the Hebrew Bible, probably written around 167 B.C.E. Okay, so, so it took 200 
plus years after the last book was written to decide what was in and what was out. Okay? Um, that process I know less about, although um, it's pretty similar to the Christian process, is that after there's enough variance, people want to know what is going to be uniform. So with our own New Testament, that wasn't decided until 385. Um, now the, old, the, the newest book in the Christian Bible, probably written 110 common era, so you're talking about 270 years later before the Bible's closed and nothing else gets in and some things got left out. And groups fought bitterly over this. Um, one of the things that nobody wanted, that a lot of people didn't want, including Martin Luther, was the book of James. Barely made it in. One of the books that didn't make it in, that almost did, called The Shepherd of Hermas, it's really weird. You, you can read it, and I just thank God every day that didn't make it in. <laughs> I'll make it in because it's weird. It's sort of like the movie Moulin Rouge, if you've seen it, um, um, but with older, older motifs. Um, you can read... Yeah, please. Yes. That had those some books that were taken out later by the Protestants, right? Yeah. Uh, let me, I'll tell you that story in one second. Yeah, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get there real fast, and then I'm gonna be done for today, and you're gonna go home, and you're gonna sleep really well because it's bored you to tears. Um, the first council happened at Nicaea, gave us the Nicaean Creed. They didn't close the Bible then; they closed it at the second one, Council of Chalcedon. That's in 385, and. Um, and, and, and again, like I said, people argued bitterly over it. The criteria they used at the times were, were lots of different groups reading the book. So that was criteria number one, lots of Christians reading it regularly. If, if only some groups were reading it, it was sort of like To Kill a Mockingbird. Glad you like it, keep it on your shelf, not going in the Bible. Um, two, was it internally coherent with the rest of the books that were being used. So if it had something really wackadoo in it, it didn't make it in. That's the goal. But now people fought over that big time, you know, fought over it big, big time. Those were the two big criteria. There is a group of books you're referring to. They're called the Apocrypha. And basically those books are written somewhere between 167 BCE, the last book in the Jewish Bible, and 50 AD, the first book in the Christian Bible. They've always, always been included with the Bible, but in a secondary status. They've always been the appendix to the Bible because they fill in a gap of 200 years of pretty important time. You may say, well, Mike, why are they in the, the Catholic Bible? And the reason they're in the Catholic Bible as the Bible is because the Pope was asserting his authority over Scripture. <laughs> this happened at the Council of Trent. There was an argument that the Bible should be the top priority. The Pope said, no, I'm the top priority, and I'll show you. I'll make the Apocrypha the Bible. And ever since the Council of Trent, the Apocrypha has been in the Catholic Bible. The Apocrypha is in my Bible as an appendix. It's always been in the Church of England's Bible as an appendix, but not as the Bible. Does that sort of make sense? That means very worth reading, but not of the same weight as the other books. I, I probably skipped over lots of interesting things just there for you and told you the things you didn't care about. Um, I apologize if I did that to you. Um, 
<laughs> no, but the most beautiful is the King James. Sometimes like when we read and, and uh, do you think so? Oh, Did you really? Uh -huh. We'll read something and you think, oh, it's so much. Some of the Psalms and I think particularly the Psalms, they're, they're so beautiful, so much more than they would later than other it's one of those things that's often done when you're looking at a different translation of the Bible is that people will immediately flip to John 3.16 to see if it's a good translation because it had better say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if it doesn't say that, it's not a good translation, right? And the other one they do is they turn to Psalm 23. And, they, and it, needs, it better say, yea, that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If it doesn't say that, it's a bad translation. I'm not buying it. And, and of course, that came from William Tyndale who was ultimately killed for making the translation. He ran away to Holland. He was an Englishman, ran to Holland, uh, published this stuff, was killed. So influential that the King James Bible used most of Tyndale's works because the people demanded it, regardless of what King James wanted. Um, because the prose is really quite nice. Prose is quite nice. I would encourage you to give yourself permission to read a different translation. If you know that one well, read a different one and see if the words strike you differently. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't use it all the time. Oh, yeah. something else, but if I want it, then it makes me nostalgic for And I'll go back and read it. So I'm, I'm positive, this, it. positive this is why we have a right one Eucharist service. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's because there's something nostalgic and poetic about the language that we want to preserve even though we don't use those words every day, we want to preserve that nostalgic poetry. That's right. But when there's when the new prayer book is printed. Lord knows when that will be. The current one is now 40 years old. Uh, people wonder, will my right one service still be in there? Because today's Episcopalians are not being formed with that language. They're being formed with right two. However, I do think there is something poetically nostalgic about right one that will probably preserve it. Yeah. You, just on a side note, I know lots, I do lots of funerals. I do. And people who do right to service their whole life want right one funerals because of the poetic nostalgia, right? Especially at that time. And, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Okay, I don't know why I said that on the recording. Hey, um, <laughs> I am so grateful. Say again? Yeah, we're using this book because it keeps us all on the same page. It, it, it's easy to follow, the scholarship is. Um, you can miss and come back to it. And again, it's a central organizing principle that I didn't have to make myself. I, I've used it before and found it very, very helpful. Um, so there you go. Hey, thank you. And if you don't want to come back, I understand. Tell me and, I, and we'll fix it. Um, but grateful that you're here and looking forward to seeing you next week.